Hello, everybody. This is the Cincinnati Herald podcast. I'm your host, John Alexander-Reese, digital editor of the Cincinnati Herald. If you don't know, the Cincinnati Herald has been around since 1955 and is the largest African-American newspaper in the greater Cincinnati area. And today, my guests are co-host and media consultant for the Cincinnati Herald, Andrea Carter. How are you doing today, Andrea? Fine, John. How are you doing today? I am doing well. And we also have with us our Herald intern, Suhana Sinhan. How are you doing today, Suhana? I'm doing fantastic, John. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. And we have a special guest with us today, architectural historian, Deka Hussein Wetzel. How are you doing today? Hi, great. Thank you for having me here too. Awesome. So let's head into some of the top news topics of the week. The two young men killed in a July 4th shooting at Smale Park likely attacked each other, police chief Elliot Isaac said Monday afternoon. 16-year-old Princeton High School student Milo Watson and 19-year-old Dexter Wright Jr. had a pre-existing disagreement that they brought with them uh, to Smile Park Sunday night, according to Isaac's account of the shooting. Police were in the park at 10.48 p.m., attempting to clear out roughly 400 July 4th celebrants ahead of its 11 p.m. closing time when shots sounded and the first 911 calls came in. Watson died at the scene. Wright lived long enough to be briefly hospitalized, but died overnight. Three other teenagers, two girls and a boy, all under the age of 18, were injured in the crossfire. All three are hospitalized. One, a 17-year-old girl, has severe injuries that could threaten her life. Andrea, what are your thoughts on this uh, very tragic story? Well, I think it's horrible that these two young men, whatever the disagreement was, they chose to um, complete the disagreement with using guns instead of thought. Um, but unfortunately, it's indicative of what has happened today with our youth. They're choosing to end arguments and skirmishes with a gun instead of their mouths and fists. And there's a lot of reasons of why or influences of why this is occurring. Everyone is looking for a solution. And I think think it's just more than just one band-aid solution to resolve this. I mean, everyone is going to be having a community meeting. There's one on Saturday at New Prospect Church. There's another one planned on the 12th by the Southern Christian Leadership Chapter here in Cincinnati. The school board, there's an article from the school board members talking about what they can do. Everyone can do it. Everyone's been talking about it. Some of the older political leaders have been talking about trying to find a solution, which, you know, any older political person who's been around for a very lengthy time and has not come up with a solution now on this problem and is cyclical, they should not be reelected um, at this point because they've had more than enough time to offer up solutions and to help work on the problem and be visible and upfront about it. And as I think of now has proven that anything, um, anyone, it's all been talking points and we need more than talking points on this. Suhana, what are your thoughts on this story? It, uh, it's so disappointing that on the day of 4th of July where everybody's out on the roads celebrating and in trying to enjoy themselves, such an incident happens and it affects young children so much. I believe that you cannot, nobody can really predict that who's going to shoot but uh, when somebody does that, regardless, it says about the dissatisfaction the society has with the system that governs them. 
I'm I'm not even sure what they fought about and how the matter became that one of them had to pull a gun and use it in such a way that it affects more than one person's life. I I think the police should do a little more investigation on it because the crime has been happening since uh, I think early 2000s, since the early beginnings of the pandemic. And I'm sure it must have had a few uh, cases here and there before that, but uh, in either case, it's if it's a co-current problem and it keeps happening over and over again, we don't need it to happen one more time to make another statement or think about what to do when this happens again. I'm glad that they are having discussions and meetings. And as Miss Andrea said, I think some major actions must be taken because it's not a big country. It's not a whole continent. It's a very small place. And uh, if we are not able to, as a community, not able to care for even such a small place, how are we going to do better contributions worldwide? And moving on to our next story. Investigative journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones says she will not teach at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill following an extended fight over tenure. Hannah-Jones announced her decision during an interview on CBS This Morning on Tuesday. She said that she would instead take up the night chair in race and investigative journalism at Howard University, a historically Black school in Washington, D.C. Andrea, your thoughts on this uh, story? I applaud her for her actions. I think the University of North Carolina, they were wrong. They were wrong to listen to a, a board member who objected, who was a publisher himself. They were, they were wrong to feed into him. But then I shouldn't even say feed into, but they all caved into their perceived uh, perceptions regarding the 1619 project. And, um, and I think that if you cannot accept the truth about history, then what else can't you accept the truth about? I think she is set the new model for not have to put up with systemic racism. She found um, a university, not only offered her tenure, not only offered her the ability to develop a new division in, in investigative journalism, she's bringing money with her. She's bringing $15 million with her to set up a foundation on investigative journalism. UNC walked away from that because she was setting up a program foundation with people with worth up to $25 million investment were going to back her and they lost that investment. That says a lot about them. And that says a lot about the racism at the university that you know they chose a color of someone's skin and what their actions over the investment of the future of educating the students at the school. And, um, and as she said, if they're, she's not responsible for fixing systemic racism, that's up to them to fix it. But instead, it's up to the responsibility of Black professionals to go to our institutions and take our skill sets to them and make them stronger and better. And uh, Deca, did you want to chime in on this uh, new story? Yeah, um, I mean, this one and or the last one too, but this one, yeah, like, you know, it just goes to show how people can't still can't have conversations about race and history. And, and honestly, I think that's pretty sad. You know, if, if we can't support the people who are doing really important things to improve black relations or just have people be more aware that slavery happened, you know, what are our educational systems really doing? You know, they, I, 
I know that in my pursuit of higher education, finding, you know, young black scholars are very few and far between. And, you know, those are the people that I would, as a younger black woman, be interested in working with. And so it's, you know, really, it's not cool that they're, you know, the university is just going to allow for donors and people with money to make decisions for them. Suhana, your thoughts? I think, John, it's a power move. Uh, it's something amazing she has done. If, first of all, what uh, the university did to her was very insulting, and it took a whole public outrage for them to change their mind. I believe as an individual, if I had to step into a professional environment after putting so much fight to get my right position there, I'm, I would wonder what would happen later after this whole outcry dies. Uh, what is my, can I see this university as my family after this, what incident has happened with me? If anybody found the time to read through her essay, they will find out that what uh, decisions she took uh, under the circumstances is very, it resonates a lot with what uh, she has written in her essay for the New York Times. I think it is wonderful that she has chosen a university that uh, was originally started by the community members of Black community. And uh, she has chosen to extend her expertise there. And it couldn't be a better time because it's not that uh, she was, she had it originally in her mind that uh, she would like to extend her services like this. But I think she understood through this whole experience with uh, the Chapel Hills that uh, she has to stand by her community and Though whatever people say, she has to extend the best of her support because this is what she wrote and this is what she tried to inform people. And I think when you take a decision like that, where you are almost rewriting the history and informing people what's the deeper truth, you somehow take this attribute of a role model. And when you are a role model, you are so much more than just your ordinary self. And I think she would have, as an, any normal employee, would have gone along with it. And I think anybody would have gone along with the Chapel Hill's decision. But at the decision and the position she took her, of herself in the society, I think she had to stand by it and she stood by it very wonderfully. Couldn't be more proud. And moving on to our next story. American champion Shikari Richardson cannot run in the Olympic 100-meter race after testing positive for THC, a chemical found in marijuana. Richardson won the 100 at the Olympic trials on June 19th. She got told of her ban Friday on the Today Show. Richardson says she smoked marijuana as a way of coping with her mother's recent death. She tested positive at the Olympic trials, and so her result is erased. Andrea, your thoughts on this story? I think it's sad that she is at the height of her game and she can't perform at it. But at the same time, she's the best example. She's the best role model for what not to do when you're at your peak and you're, you're about to, you're up on that mountaintop of success and one wrong decision will topple you down so far that it'd be a struggle to get back up again. I understand that, you know, marijuana is relaxing People like to smoke it. It's, you know, I understand grief of a mother passing is devastating. I just got through it. But at the same time, you're an Olympian. You're held to a higher standard. I don't care what category you're in, you're held to a higher standard. You don't do it. 
you wait for after you've reached that peak. She could have waited until after Tokyo. I feel bad for her, but at the same time, your actions speak louder than words. And I'm sorry. Um, Deca, your thoughts on this story? Yeah, well, um, you know, the Olympics are international and not national. So I think we can, you know, my opinions would be a lot stronger as if this was just a national issue because, you know, so many states are legalizing and, and it's seen as medical usage. But, you know, for that fact, that's, you know, it is unfortunate that there are rules and, you know, you can't really do much about it. I do know that lots of athletes struggle with anxiety. I mean, a lot of people struggle with anxiety. A lot of people struggle with that, but they also, you know, could turn to other things and it would like, as anybody else can turn to alcohol or something else that could be way more detrimental to their health and their body. So, you know, I think that the issue is the way that we all see marijuana as a, you know, I'm pretty sure it's never killed anybody ever. Um, like that's literally a statistic. You know, we also know that that is um, the type of drug that is, you know, seen as quote unquote gateway. And it's just like the mentality I think that exists around it is very old school. And it just, you know, should be put into the conversation. Maybe that is something to discuss. This is not the first time this has happened in the Olympics. Uh, there's questions with Michael Phelps at one point and people had their opinions with that one too. So, you know, it just... I think that we all need to work together to kind of really identify where the biggest issues lie and especially, um, you know, dealing with what people are doing in the Olympics, you know, um, it, you know, I just, I don't know. I, I never understood how, how honestly alcohol can be seen as completely okay um, in a lot of ways. And, and marijuana is seen as just like the devil, uh, you know, it's, it's not, neither one might be great, but it's just a, a little bit of a double standard. I kind of think. Suhana, your thoughts on the story? I would agree with uh, Ms. Deka on a lot of these points. Uh, I think coming from a very old school and um, high standards of sports history, it's very difficult now with the times changing to live by that. And I think it would be nice if uh, it would be, I think, better if there is a whole conversation about it again. Uh, that how much what are the rules or do does some rules need some leniency or some things need to be changed uh, I can't imagine what kind of pressure as an individual Richardson must be dealing at that point because uh, you're literally in all are going to Olympics and at the same time grieving over your over the loss of your mother and it must have been a very emotionally heightened time of her life and she must be still going through it uh, I think more than the conversation around marijuana and should she be allowed to be allowed to play or not i think as a society we should extend a little more compassion towards her as an individual because uh, everybody comes from uh, certain experiences and that makes them what they are though this particular incident doesn't define what whole of she is as a person and who am i to judge here but I think by the time we understand or get some clarity about what kind of athlete she is or how she's going to perform in future, we should, as a human beings who are going through tough times, extend some kindness towards her circumstances and wish her all the best for the next uh, project, whatever she's going to take in. And uh, I hope she feels better. And uh, if she needs a break or she needs to go through her process to feel better, then I think she should do. And uh, 
not care about a lot of things around her, but she should focus on her healing at this point. And uh, I think it's not a big deal. Finding THC in her body, it's not a big deal. And uh, it was not done out of um, uh, malpractice. It was not done uh, to create, get some advantage in the race. It was just done to cope with themselves. And um, I think it's not very criminal. It has its own penalties, but uh, um, I don't think people who see this news should feel that it's a horrendous crime that she has committed. It is just normal. Uh, let's move on to our next story. An official says Haitian President Jovenel Moise has been assassinated after a group of unidentified people attacked his private residence. Interim Premier uh, Claude Joseph says First Lady Martine Moise is hospitalized. Joseph condemned what he called a hateful, inhumane, and barbaric act. He said Haiti's national police and other authorities have the situation in the Caribbean country under control on Wednesday. The killing comes amid deepening political and economic instability and a spike of gang violence. Andrea, your thoughts on this tragic story? Well, I, I think it's tragic and the fact that he was assassinated, one, in his own bed, which is horrific in itself, and it feels sorry for his wife. But I think, too, the, the fact that he was ruling Haiti, there is no parliament, there is no Senate, there is no VP, there's nothing. So he was the government. So someone seized upon this opportunity to be able to take over. And I think this is a worst case scenario of what can happen to a democracy. Haiti has always been turbulent. It's still trying to stabilize itself with you know, elections and things like that. Even the, the president's assassin, even though the, the, the former president, when he was elected in 2017, there was controversy over the election. But supposedly he had promised to smooth things out and then dissolved everything. So it's gonna be interesting to watch the next steps of what's going to happen and see how the people um, react, well, either react to who takes over or rise up to demand a full functioning government and not just one dictator. Decca, your thoughts on this story? Yeah, I think that um, with underdeveloped countries or countries that don't have stable governments, I mean, this is something that we see in my home continent of Africa a lot. Things get quite out of hand and people rebel. And, you know, these these things can only go on for so many decades and in centuries, I think. Internationally, I think that, you know, whatever entities, UN or whatnot, should really start to, you know, look at these these particular, you know, dictatorial issues, um, like issues for, for having, you know, dictators as, as presidents, they should really take a look at that and, and see what could possibly be done as a whole. I mean, I know it's a very touchy, very crazy subject to even try to begin to figure out what to do, because every country's very much got their own different reasons um, for instigating a violence or but it's just I mean it's kind of overboard to go in and 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 have this kind of massacre happen it sounds that it must have been elaborate of sorts to be able to get through security and whatnot so it you know it, it, it's unfortunate and I think that we could you know do better as a whole as like a, you know as an international group to you know, look at this and say hey you know yeah well how can we how can we help what can we do I, I don't particularly know the answer to that um, but I just hope that somebody out there might have an interest in trying. Suhana, your thoughts on this story? Um, John, as we mourn over the killing of Haiti president, 
all over US and wherever the news has reached. Uh, citizens of Haiti are not quite sad, I must say. Uh, several reports are saying that this was a very sophisticated planning, uh, uh, his execution and its very rare occurrence. Uh, you don't see killing of president just because of political instability in a lot of time. It's usually when the cases are very severe than this goes. Haiti has been existing as a, a very popular tourist destination. And uh, while existing that same image, such a turbulent scenario has occurred is uh, quite fascinating, I must say, to the least. People were dissatisfied with the now late president because of the, sub, the, uh, the connection he has shared with United States and the support he garnered there. For a while, people have been wanting him to step down from his position, but with some international support, which reports are saying from US, he has been staying in power for a while. I don't know, uh, usually after the death of a very strong political figure, uh, huge chaos erupts. I don't know how it's gonna affect uh, Haiti's economy and daily life of people, but a lot of people are going to be persecuted for this. And I hope it doesn't turn into a bloodbath. We don't want to lose one more place to never-ending eternal chaos. Um, if through some diplomatic relations and after some give and take, if we can get some political stability there, it will be great for the future for the, of Haiti. But um, my, my condolences to the president's family who are experiencing this grief. And uh, I just hope, and my condolences to the citizens who are going to take the heat of this circumstances and uh, I hope they can find a better life and future out of this whole situation. All the best uh, to Hathi because uh, it should not turn into other chaos. And moving on to our final story. Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams has won the Democratic primary for mayor of New York City. Adams triumphed over a large field in New York's first major race to use ranked choice voting. The ballot count published Tuesday night is the fourth of the primary vote as preliminary counts were held in the new system to see who would advance. Adams defeated rivals, including former city sanitation commissioner, uh, Catherine Garcia, civil rights lawyer, Maya Wiley, and former presidential candidate, Andrew Yang. Andrea, your thoughts on this story? I think it's very exciting. I think what he did, how he did it, how he rose through the ranks. For someone who's never held a political office, what he did to navigate the chaotic waters of a New York primary, I should say a New York City primary, is um, interesting to see how his strategy unfolded. And the fact that he is a former New York City police officer, he used that to his advantage when people start talking about crime and police reform and things like that. Um, I, I've been reading up on his um, win and they were saying that what he did was a good blueprint for Democrats around the country on how they could use his argument and framework regarding police reform, being tough on crime. And instead of, as people cry, defund the police and said, no, 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 we need to reform the police because we still need them to fight, come back this you know, overwhelming epidemic of um, youth gun violence. And I think he used that to his advantage. And I think it's fantastic. And I can't wait to see what he does um, as mayor. Deca, your thoughts on this story? Yeah, I really, I think this is why I love ranked choice voting. It makes it 
a lot more fair uh, for people's for, for people's votes to actually be heard and counted and, and really feel like it's making an impact. Without that, this the the you know might have been switched and 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 somebody else might have gone ahead, and that just kind of goes to show how important ranked choice voting can be within our entire system. You know, I I think. For example, ranked choice voting for like the primaries, like Democratic primaries or whatever, you know, like that would be a huge game changer. Um, so, you know, yeah, it's, it's just it's impressive to me that, um, you know, New York's jumping on the bandwagon to do ranked choice voting and and it's being starting to be seen and in, in different places and how it works and how it actually makes voting more inclusive. Suhana, your thoughts? John, little that I know of, uh, New York has a history of uh, a lot of crime and uh, uh, interracial violence. I feel like, uh, I mean, I'm trying, I'm saying this with utmost sincerity, but uh, it's a little bit pun behind it. It feels like a plot out of Brooklyn Nine-Nine <laughs> and a retired police officer is now a mayor of New York. I think it's quite interesting because the, the candidate who has come in power is a person of color and a person who understands the severity of the situation because of their past experiences. I think the, it's going to be very exciting and there is a lot more changes that are coming our way. Of course, changes are very tough to make happen considering it takes cooperation from a lot of people. But Considering that uh, Eric won with so many popular votes, I think he's going to garner this decent amount of support. And uh, I'm excited what's coming for New York. Let me see, like, when I visit New York next time, how safe I feel in the city. <laughs> That's about it for me. And those are all of the top stories of the week. So now I'll hand over to my co-host, Andrea, to talk to our special guest. Thank you, John. And it is my pleasure to introduce um, Deca Hussein Wetzel, who is a historic preservationist and urban planner. And she, with her partner, Vanessa Quirk, are, um, are the producers of the Urban Roots podcast, which is a narrative of urban America um, utilizing rich archival materials, interviewing passionate local experts and exploring untold neighborhood, untold stories. She's been taking a look at various Cincinnati neighborhoods um, in the area. And I just like to say, hi, Decca. Hey, Andrea. Thank you for joining us today. And um, can you, in your own words, tell us a little about urban roots? I mean, I'm, I, I need to disclose that I am subject of one of her podcasts talking about Avondale, North Avondale. But oh, give an overall, in your views, what was the inspiration for creating Urban Roots? So Urban Roots is, it's not really your traditional history podcast. I really wanted to create something that makes people start to think, um, you know, a little bit more about how their cities function and how, their, how the history of their city has impacted the present day. And so, you know, as I studied urban planning, I realized that that so much has happened in the past that seems to be repeating. And then I studied historic preservation in graduate school and found that, oh, yeah, okay, well, these are answers to my questions here. Yes, absolutely. These, you know, it's, these, these planning 
theories and planning policies from the past are really what's impacted our histories today. Um, and I lived in, when I lived in Oregon, I sort of started to realize, you know, well, what, 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 why is this place so white? What makes this place just, you know, so lacking in diversity? And I investigated and I found out the reasons were tied to their historical past. They had laws that prevented black people from staying in the state um, that lasted until the 1920s. To me, when I've been working in historic preservation and doing archival research and looking in newspapers just for, you know, simple things like reports or historic context, like, you know, in the, in the actual historic preservation architectural history field, which is like technically cultural resource management um, is kind of what it's called. And I would come across some pretty horrific stories on lynchings and riots. And I would also find impressive stories about strong black women who've done really, really cool things. And it seemed like people didn't really know much about those cool things that those impressive black women had done. So all that together kind of made me think, okay, well, how do I, you know, utilize my, my, you know, love for really podcast being an educational and public history tool um, to make planning and preservation more accessible and inclusive. And so me and Vanessa came up with Urban Roots. So what neighborhoods, um, I'm looking at a list right now. You have um, done podcasts about Evanston um, and Avondale. Where else have you done a podcast about, but it hasn't come out yet? Yeah, so I started, uh, well, so Vanessa and I started the Lost Voices of Cincinnati series that um, we started producing in the beginning of 2021 after we won a Truth and Reconciliation grant from Artswave. And I partnered with Invest in Neighborhoods to figure out the important communities to highlight that, you know, I could apply for this grant and be like, you know, what, well, what can we do here? How can we most benefit the communities in Cincinnati? And um, we decided to work with Avondale, Evanston and South Cumminsville. And so the last episode that has not come out yet is South Cumminsville and that will be out July 17th, which actually will be accompanied by um, on that same day, uh, the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Arts Wave event at the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center. So that will be a big showcase of all the artists or all, the, all a lot of artists who had um, things that they could produce to be able to be showcased there. And for the listeners, just uh, if you want to keep up with that on Instagram, you could follow at Urban Roots Culture, and we will help you stay up to date with the things that are happening. Well, what were some of the inspiring stories that you heard from the Evanston and the Avondale podcast that really sit with you? Well, in Evanston, it was really inspiring to speak with Mary Ward, who had attended St. Mark's School. And her, you know, enthusiasm um, that she kind of explained, you know, when she was a kid about going into the uh, school for the first time and seeing these nuns who she didn't realize were nuns. She didn't know what they were. They were just these ladies in some robes. And I thought that that was just so great because it went to show that, you know, not everybody really knows what everything is. And you really learn a lot by, um, you know, you know, you're, you're what you what you go through in school, but then, you know, she still comes out of it with this strong tie to St. Mark. And I think that's really cool and really impressive. 
And, um, you know, with Avondale, I think that the stories I thought were super impressive were just hearing how, um, you know, the, including you, Andrea, the uh, Black women that I interviewed were, you know, working really, really hard to do really moving things in their communities um, in Avondale. And I thought that that was just, you know, super inspiring. And, and then, you know, the things that I learned about the communities, um, the thing I learned about the community, sorry, the thing that I learned about Avondale um, was really the, you know, fact that it, it really experienced a different kind of white flight back in the mid-century, that it used to have a strong white Jewish population. And then it's over time become more African-American. And the reasons for that are explained in the podcast, but you know, I mean, I didn't really know. And, and I'm, you know, sitting there just thinking how, how inspiring is it that these uh, women and the people that they have been involved with, you know, their parents and, and aunts and uncles and other, you know, just, you know, really, um, you know, significant Black people in the community who have worked for civil rights, you know, these women are tangentially involved with or associated with. And I just was, you know, blown away by everything that they do and they keep doing for the community. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing to me when you mentioned St. Mark, you know, St. Mark is um, significant to me because that's where I went to church as a child. My parents were married there. I took my, no, not my first communion, but I was confirmed in the Catholic Church at St. Mark's. I was, that's where I took my confirmation. And, um, and then, you know, as you grow, you move away from those legendary landmarks that, you know, was a strong symbol in the Black community. And now it's, you know, they now have to save that symbol um, right now. But I think also the history of Avondale is very unique in terms of first Avondale as a whole, then it was split between South Avondale and North Avondale became, South Avondale became Avondale and then North Avondale remained North Avondale. And how the white Jewish flight, many moved out near Bond Hill, Amberley Village, and a few stayed in North Avondale because I grew up with a, a, several Jewish students going attending North, um, North Avondale Elementary. Um, so, I mean, it's just interesting to see here all that history again intertwined and experiences and things like that. What do you hope for the future for Urban Roots Podcast? Well, I hope that we can generate funding um, to, to really get more episodes out. And the episodes that will come for season two will be more focused um, nationally and internationally. Um, and we've, we've actually, uh, you know, got some really great stuff that we will that we will share on Greenwood Cemetery in New York and Biddy Mason and Madame C.J. Walker. It's kind of taking the larger, uh, you know, more prominent people of urban, of Black urban history, but people that are not necessarily prominent at all in a way too. Um, so, so we're just trying to highlight some of the really neat things these women have done and, um, you know, what, what, you know, Greenwood Cemetery is doing to, to highlight the black portions of the cemetery and you know just just different things to get people to to really hear about some interesting minority history be like oh wow that's that's really neat i didn't know that about that and 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 maybe hopefully people can start to think okay well maybe we should include these things in our history books and 
you know, I think I just really want Urban Roots to sort of just plant the seeds in people's heads to get them to start to think about how we could all systematically make change together by A, making sure people have um, open minds about the histories they learn and B, you know, really looking back at policy and, and education and, and making sure that the mistakes of the past aren't repeated. Um, you know, that's, those are very important lessons that, that we're, we're trying to teach. And, and I really try to make sure that all the episodes do have like a, you know, a, a city spinner or a spin on like digging into history in a way that might not be found from other podcasts, just because, you know, I have a little bit of that urban planning, historic preservation background that I think just provides a little bit of a unique experience to, you know, for example, with the Evanston episode, you know, essentially the buildings were the protagonists. And that was, you know, a very unique way to, to kind of take a, a podcast episode. And the other ones for the Lost Voices series are very much more community based. And I have to shout out to uh, I have to shout out to South Cumminsville because that story will be really heartwarming, I think, for a lot of our listeners. And I hope that everybody will really enjoy how community oriented and, and tight knit South Cumminsville really is. Yeah, I admire South Cumminsville because even despite their many struggles and setbacks, their community council is thriving and they're just trying to move forward to, to make that neighborhood better than what it is. I also wanna make a suggestion. Um, you might wanna look at the Woodland Cemetery in Dayton, Ohio. Paul Lawrence Dunbar is buried there along with the Wright brothers. Okay, great. Yeah, you 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 tell me as I'm taking notes. So um, <laughs> no, that's a good one. I mean, I think that yeah, you know that I welcome any of your ideas. So well, I mean, um, Dayton, Dayton. Um, just to talk about Dayton, Ohio, for a minute. Um, you know, they they have an Air Force base there, but the fact that the Wright brothers settled in Dayton, Ohio, after the historic flight at Kitty Hawk, um, is significant, and the fact that. Um, there are several references to Paul Lawrence Dunbar within um, the Black community there in Dayton, and they honored him. I think they named a high school after him or something. And um, they, I think his house where he lived is still standing. And um, uh, my father lives in Dayton, so that's the only reason why I know this. And um, they, you know, from a historical, uh, from a historical sense, Dayton is a hidden figure because they also have... Um, Oh, who was the Olympic runner who they've named a street after? Um, Meadows. Well, I think it was Mark Meadows, I think, or something like that. Um, or Martin, I can't think of his name. But I remember Meadows, Madeline, something like that. He, they have a street named after him and he was the Olympic runner. So Dayton is an aspect of a hidden gem that most people don't look to for things. What else are you involved with, DECA, besides Urban Roots? So I started a nonprofit to umbrella the podcast under so we could start applying for grant monies um like for real <laughs> and uh you know because you know this, this podcast really has taken so much time and it's been really difficult for Vanessa and I and our our editor Connor Lynch to make happen so you know quickly it really stre stretched us pretty thin because we had a six month turn a uh, six month turnaround period for it uh, but 
you know, we are so happy with what we've been able to put together and just want to keep doing it so badly. So what's next is more, hopefully more podcasts, but also, you know, Urbanist Media is designed to essentially link preservation and planning and, and kind of history in that digital sense. Um, so, you know, with podcasts and perhaps other, other types of podcasts that we can start to produce that, um, you know, could maybe be more, you know, mini episodes where we dig into lots of other cities in, in Ohio, smaller cities, or, or, you know, even, even rural areas, it's not, you know, urban roots is called urban roots, but, you know, we all cut their, the roots, where are the roots coming from? Well, some are from the rural areas. So, you know, we, we want to be all encompassing and make sure that, you know, we're, you know, doing everything we can to, to make sure that planning and preservation is just more inclusive and accessible for all people and easy for people to understand. Um, so for example, like, you know, things about housing or zoning or, you know, um, block, you know, block busting and, and redlining the historic terms too, that people are not really familiar with. Well, we want to try to make those, you know, synthesize them and make them something that people can know easily understand so whether that's the you know through urban roots podcast where in the avondale episode we specifically dive into those planning um you know mistakes <laughs> and and the um you know you know racist housing practices that occurred as a result of a really really terrible uh you know couple of centuries uh, plus for african americans and from that or also for um you know, the, the digital like print standpoint. Um, so keep people should keep an eye out on our Instagram at Urban Roots Culture. And I will be posting lots of different things there that are not just photographs, but also a little bit of digital media to get people's, you know, heads thinking about some of the other important topics and issues and concerns and things that, you know, we should be talking about on the regular as a community. Okay, well, thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. John? Yes, and uh, thank you, Decca. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you, Sana, for contributing to the uh, news stories of the week. We greatly appreciate it. And guys, make sure to check out the stories we talked about today on our website at www.thecincinnatiarrow.com. You can also check out our print edition, which is sold at your local Kroger, UDF, Walgreens, Joseph F. Booksellers, and at select service stations. Make sure to subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app. We're on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Audible, and TuneIn Radio. Just search for the Cincinnati Herald podcast. Follow us at the Cincinnati Herald on Facebook. Follow us at Cincy Herald on Twitter and Instagram. And you can also follow us on YouTube. Just search for the Herald TV. I'm John Alexander Reese, digital editor of the Cincinnati Herald, and have a good day. Mm -hmm.